This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome to those of you joining us here live on Clubhouse. Welcome to the Decentralized Trials Club. And if you're joining us on your favorite podcast platform, you're doing that by giving a follow to Decentralized, our podcast that gets pushed out every week, a couple of days after our live show on Clubhouse. Always great to join us live if you're able to. We do gather here on Clubhouse every Friday from 12 to 1 Eastern to discuss a range of topics related to decentralized research. And our topics are always so wide and varied, whether it's topics around trial resilience and sustainability, technical concerns around interoperability and data flow, patient factors around experience, diversity, representation, ethical policy considerations. We had a great conversation just a couple of weeks ago talking about rural and frontier health and the role for decentralized research there. And I learned so much from these conversations and I'm so grateful to the many experts and voices that join us here for folks that are able to join us live, our format remains the same. We'll talk with our guests for the first half an hour or so about their work and perspective on the topic of the week. And then we'll open up the room so that if you're able to join us live, that'll be your chance to come off of mute, jump up on the stage and share your experience, question, perspective. Uh, if that doesn't work for you because of timing, that's okay. The podcast is still a great way to stay current with all of the content that's out there that we've been capturing here, uh, having this show now for, I don't even know how long, Amir. I feel like I'm going to say a year and a half. That's oh, longer. About... It's, it's longer, longer, Jane. Two years oh, we've been doing this. It feels like a minute. Well, this is how I met Amir, literally. <laughs> That's crazy, Jane. Um, all right, so note to the team, let's do an episode count because we really haven't, uh, we haven't really kept track there. Well, uh, Amir, Jane, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. We are going to dig in around uh, some work that had been done by MRCT, the Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center, um, and 
uh, with partners from Medible and a whole community of different voices that they brought together around IRB and ethics considerations and some specific recommendations around decentralized research. Jane, I'm sure in your comings and goings in the field, you hear a lot of either concerns, whether they're myths or realities from different stakeholders around IRB interactions? Yeah, I sure do. In fact, I have heard that the the concerns about IRB review have led some teams to walk away from their intention to use methods that include DCT elements. So I'm hoping we can resolve some of that, demystify some of it, and point teams to resources that'll help them. Sounds like a great uh, a great setup for today's conversation. Let's get started by uh, by meeting Barbara Beer because I, I I I'd love to have you, Barbara, introduce yourself and also share a little about a little bit about who is MRCT. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time at the on this platform, and I love it. I'm Barbara Beer. I'm a professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, a hematologist oncologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and uh, the faculty founder and director of the Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center of the Brigham and Harvard. MRCT Center, as we call it, is a research and policy center uh, that is based at both Brigham and, the, and Harvard that looks at the ethics, conduct, and regulatory environment of uh, multi-site, multinational clinical trials. Um, and try to do that, the work by identifying emerging or persistent issues in clinical research, and then pulling together an, an, you know, a stakeholder group that is fully representative of the stakeholders that are affected by the problem in order to structure actionable and uh, um, reasonable solutions or at least approaches to those solutions. We think of ourselves as a sort of think and do tank. Um, and, um, you know, Medible was the perfect partner to do this work with on DCTs. Barbara, there are a lot of collaborations out there. Um, many in the audience here may be familiar with City and Transcelerate and so many others, but MRCT has always had a very unique lean, whether it's around um, considerations on global scale, uh, considerations that may be uh, leaned in on ethics or other areas. How do you uh, separate MRCT in the minds for folks that may not be familiar with the group? That's a great uh, question. So it it has parallels um, to City. I think City and, and MRCT have become ever better partners. I'm on their executive board committee now. Um, but we do take the view that we're working on international issues and won't do something that is fully U.S. generally. Now, some things have a different valence or, or salience uh, for the U.S. We've done, you know, eight or 10 years of work now on diversity, inclusion, equity, um, which obviously has a different um, flavor in the U.S. than elsewhere, but it certainly is impactful outside uh, the U.S. borders. Um, and uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that, you know, we're uh, like, um, you know, we do have uh, pharma CROs 
patient, patient advocates, academics, uh, et cetera, regulators. But um, unlike Transcelerate, which is really pharma leaning or entirely leaning towards pharma and a foundation of pharma companies. And unlike City, we're not, you know, FDA isn't first among equals. It is, it was a conscious decision early on that we wouldn't be funded by a regulatory agency and therefore everyone would have an equal voice. Um, so we work very, very closely with uh, Health Canada and EMA. Uh, we've done a lot of work in Africa now and in uh, uh, India uh, when they came out with these terrible regulations 10 years ago. So it's it's got a different perspective, but we're doing a fair amount of work obviously that has relevance to the US. Thanks so much, Barbara. I got to give a shout out to some of my favorite things on the MRCT website, which I just dropped uh, as a pin here for those on Clubhouse or check out mrctcenter.org. For those of you uh, checking this out later on, uh, some of the things that I've uh, loved intersecting with MRCT on in the past had to do with some leading work around um, patient-friendly uh, summaries of uh, study results, making sure that individual results can get back to the participants in research. And I think MRCT was always at the tip of the spear on this and so many other important topics, uh, creating important uh, thought leadership on it, as well as some tools and resources. And then certainly some of the things MRCT has done over the years in data sharing, including, you know, really helping to almost be the genesis for Vivly and uh, types of data sharing capabilities that otherwise didn't exist. So I'm, I'm certainly uh, grateful to the, uh, to the work you. that MRCT has pioneered over the years. Thank you, Craig. I mean, Vivly was actually came out of a project uh, that we had done on data sharing with the EMA, but I, um, we don't do operations. You know, if there is a thing like Vivly, we spin it out. So really good, good point. Thank you. Sure, just a quick thing. I remember actually at the very beginning of MRCT, I was involved for a while with one of my other hats. I have a very basic question I'd like to ask Barbara, which is always kind of interesting to me. Um, long time ago, you know, I tried different ways of having RBs come together and kind of come to consensus on some things. And I found out very quickly at the time, and I was seeing on RB myself at the time, that the RRBs took the I in the RRB extremely seriously, the independent. So there was a real reluctance to really even talk to each other or come to any consensus on anything. So I'm just wondering, is that changed in any way or how does one get RRBs to talk to each other when the I is taken you know, very seriously? <laughs> so great question. It um, speaks to some of my other hats, one of which is running, I, I developed and ran or run now Smart IRB, which is a national platform for reliance of a any uh, institution that's a signatory to the Smart IRB agreement to rely on any other IRB in the nation. There are now 1170 institutions who have signed uh, and we're about to do um, and so it's been incredible to get uh, groups to sort of realize that we have to come up with 
at least convergent and if not harmonized policies and approaches so that you don't get a different review. I think that uh, at least in the US, um, uh, this has been stimulated in part by the requirements for uh, research uh, funded or supported uh, or involving or conducted by the US uh, uh, um, federal uh, uh, institutions to to be reviewed only by one IRB, and it's something that FDA has an NPRN out about now, so that there is greater collaboration. There are also certain professional societies that are working to do that. We've got uh, a fairly strong relationship with the IRBs and the Human Research Protection Programs, partly through my work on Smart IRB. I'm also the one of the program director for the Regulatory Foundation's Ethics and Law Program for the Clinical and Translational Science Center at Harvard, which really brings together um, the 60 largest academic institutions under uh, NIH and specifically NCATS. But you're right, they are independent, but I do think people are finally realizing that it doesn't help to have um, differentiating call uh, to different approaches. So, um, and then in, in the U, in, outside the US, which is a whole other question, um, we've been working on developing ethics capacity. We were, you know, sat on and helped the WHO come up with an ethics benchmarking tool that they came out with last year uh, for ethics committees. And we're now involved uh, as the MRCT Center in creating the online ethics course that will be the WHO uh, course for all ethics com committees across the globe uh, and posted on Open WHO as a free resource to anyone who's interested. Great. So we're doing what we can, mm -hmm. but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, foxhole by foxhole battle for people who think they've got the right ethical stance and that everybody should agree with them. And as that's we great. know, yeah, the best, the, the, you know, every IRB, the response to a general question is, it depends. <laughs> that doesn't help. The so. really pre yeah, no, really appreciate that explanation. It's really good to know what, how it's evolved. My last question, I'll keep quiet for a bit. Um, uh, as you're dealing with global kind of um, programs, is the US the only country in the world that allows private entities to own RRBs? Oh, very good question. No. So what, but, what, are the, what are the other examples? Oh, oh, so in India, for instance, there are hospitals with that are privately owned and they yeah. host their own IRBs. I mean, it just, and it's not uncommon. Um, but there are now, there is a movement to at least make sure that the I is independent if it's, you know, and not wholly owned subsidiaries of the um, site or institution that is, uh, that it is, uh, you know, working for. Great. Thank you. Well, that was a juicy little question there, Amir. Uh, let's jump over to Leanne, because uh, I'd love to, uh, Leanne, have you introduce yourself and set up a bit about why this was a question that you wanted to pursue with the team from MRCT. 
Great. Um, happy to and delighted to be here today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to share the work we've done with MRCT. Um, my name is Leanne Madre. I'm Vice President of Evidence and Best Practice at Medipol. Um, I sit within the science department and we spend um, a lot of our time working with um, really uh, leaders, particularly in the academic space, uh, such as Barbara and others, to understand um, evidence around BCTs and um, as well as drive best practices. Um, and, you know, it's not just about our company, which certainly, um, you know, believe strongly that decentralized approaches are the way that clinical trials uh, need to be done, but the entire enterprise and contributing to the knowledge that exists um, out there. For this particular project that we're speaking about today, um, it was actually the brainchild of Barbara and Pam Tenarts, who will hopefully be joining us soon as the Chief Science Officer at Medible. Um, but it was um, really a recognition that um, IRBs were doing things differently in their review of decentralized elements. Often they didn't even know when there were decentralized elements in a clinical trial because most often it wasn't even in the protocol specifically, um, and they were approaching it very differently. And so this was an opportunity to bring together multiple stakeholders from academic and non-academic IRBs, regulators, uh, sites, patients. Craig, uh, you were invited and I believe participated some as well. Um, but really bringing together a lot of different perspectives and looking at questions such as what are the ethical issues IRBs should be concerned about in re reviewing um, trials with decentralized elements? What's different about a DCT than a traditional trial? And importantly, um, what's not different? Um, so that we're not creating extra burden when there is when there are decentralized elements. And um, we talked a little bit about the international versus US. And so there was representation not only from the US, but Canada and uh, Europe as well. And any surprises, Leanne, that came up as you were bringing folks together? Were there um, myths that needed busting or were there processes that were just challenging that you um, maybe didn't anticipate hearing about? I, I was really surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, how many IRBs didn't even realize there were decentralized elements and therefore they couldn't ask the right questions and that this was actually in practice leading to a lot of back and forth between IRBs um, and sponsors or sites and a lot of wasted um, time and energy when um, you know having the right information up front would have been um, much better for everybody. Uh, I was also surprised by um, folks who didn't really know what to do in terms of a decentralized clinical trial and, um, you know, and those who had really come up with a sophisticated approach, uh, such as with informed consent, you know, they would review the text and then at the end they had a particular person who was very familiar with technology do an expedited review um, so that they were sort of doing a fit for purpose approach. Um, so I think those were, were some of the things that surprised me. Interesting. Thanks so much, Leanne. Barbara, as you're thinking about the work you were doing, what were some of the 
deliverables or, or work product? What's the output that you were um, looking to create? So I think it's important um, that uh, everyone understands that it was MRCT and Medible led, but really informed by a large work group representing, you know, multiple different stakeholders. Craig was part of that, just to say. Um, and and the deliverables were very much defined by the uh, by the work group, and the deliverables were focused on giving very practical guidance to to, to IRBs and their human research protection programs um, at sites. It it is clear that while IRBs have need to do the review, it's also clear that. Um, sites needed to be prepared to assist their investigators to enable uh, decentralized clinical trials for, unless they were fully decentralized without be, without involving any um, sort of academic or unrelated site. So obviously, in time, we're going to see the out, you know, the growth of uh, vendors and other organizations like, you know, it was CVS, but pharmacies who can enable trials without the involvement of um, an academic or, or other individuals. But for now, most, most of the time, there is some PI who in FDA regulated research has a responsibility for the conduct, although not the design necessarily of the trial. So we also took the position that what we did in time needed to be translated for assistance to the uh, to the institution. But most of our deliverables were strategically very uh, directive about helping IRBs recognize, as Leanne says, how these were not different uh, and how they were variations of many things that we had done in the past uh, as as institutions enabling uh, clinical trials and now uh, needed to be tweaked but not remodeled. Uh, so we've always gotten consent. The, the form of consent may be different if it's electronic, but the nature of consent is not. What we need to do is make sure that the process is inclusive and allows time for a participant, potential participant to ask questions, et cetera, and then have a documented signature. But you do that anyway. And the fact that it's electronic and at a distance potentially needs to be accommodated, but is not in its core a different process. Thank you. So I have a quick question actually, maybe it's quick. <laughs> and I'm curious because you've really you brought something up that I think leads to that scenario I mentioned at the front end of this, where sometimes sites or even study teams decide I'm not going to go through the IRB process, so I just won't use this method. What, if anything, did you find was most often getting viewed differently or I'm not going to say held to a different standard, but something about the new process was leading to different sorts of questions, or maybe you didn't find anything that was different. So just to say, Jane, you know, every clinical trial has to go through, uh, at least in, you know, in all of our institutions has to go through an IRB, whether it has DCT elements or not. Um, 
it, it it's it, you know the the nature of how you do the work is different, but the fact that it is has oversight of an ethics committee is not. Obviously, if it's a fully commercial trial and that does not involve, uh, you know, I, I guess it could escape IRB review, but we don't have that in any of our institutions. So that's not a differentiator. What is, um, what, what we did find is that people were less comfortable with oversight responsibilities from an institution to um, both vendors uh, and sites and healthcare providers and and even you know the nature of the participant groups that at a distance where they had no idea what the infrastructure was like. One of the things that's advantageous about being, let's say, at the Brigham is that you know generally how things are done and how patients or participants are protected, cared for, and you know what's going to happen in the event that they need uh, uh, emergent or urgent care or advice. We don't know that when we are working with sites that we have no relationship with or understanding of. So the farther away it is and the less known it is, the more worried people are, IRBs and the investigators, about taking on that responsibility. Okay, that, that tracks for sure and has come up a bunch in different conversations. I'm also sort of interested, I don't know if you navigated this, but lots of situations I've seen actually work by not knowing the individual investigator until the patient is identified. I'm curious a little bit to know how you navigated that as you were thinking through the review and, and those oversight concerns. That's exactly right. That's a It's a big problem <clears throat> and a big opportunity. It's an opportunity to bring those folks into the fold of doing clinical research. Many of them have not, uh, and it's an opportunity for both uh, patients with rare diseases who wouldn't necessarily be seen at a center that has that trial for them. Uh, but, you know, part of that is, I think, been really remodeled by our experience in COVID-19 and our ability to do things now at a, at a distance through virtual, virtual technologies that were not available to us before. We routinely get on the phone now a video conference with, um, you know, the the uh, you know the physician who's asking for a second opinion or or for the clinical trialist out wherever they are with uh, the you know PI at a center. So I don't I think that that's really changing, um, and one of, but it is it is very different. And then you know we have to figure out. For the IRB, for instance, how to add the site, add the healthcare provider, decide whether the healthcare provider is a sub-investigator, co-investigator, or, you know, and is independently, if it's an FDA-regulated trial on a 1572, or whether it's a delegated responsibility, all of those things. Um, and then the IRB has to be confident that the site 
for whom they're reviewing has the infrastructure to make sure that they're good performers, have the training, which is their responsibility. So there's a lot that goes into this. It's, it may save time, it may save money, and it may save, um, may extend access to participants in places and times where they did not have access before. But we do have to work through how to do this uh, sort of background work well and safely. And I think that the work that Medible and we and the, the work group did uh, is going to be helpful to, I hope, to make people feel that we've thought about these issues, they can engage, and there's nothing magical out there that's going to hit them that they haven't at least thought about, which is always the problem. You know, what else, what else don't I know about this process if I've never done it before? So this was part of our effort was to demystify the experience and, and help people think, you know, this is a change, but it's a change they can do. Thank you. And I was just going to um, add on to what Barbara said. Um, I think one of the reasons we approached the framework and recommendations that as we did was really for each of the topics to lay out the questions that an IRB should ask, whether they're dealing with, um, you know, direct-to-participant shipping or um, remote visits, because it could be depending on the population or um, the medical condition that participants have, the answers to the questions could vary. And so why something like the use of a retail pharmacy might be um, might require a lot more vigorous um, look by the IRB. There could be situations where um, it, it may not feel as concerning. And so by setting up the questions that the IRBs should ask, it really gives them hopefully the ability to do their um, review and assessment in a trial-specific way. We are just at our halfway point here with this week's gathering. If you're just joining us here on Clubhouse, welcome. You have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. This week we're talking about recommendations for ethics committees and IRBs generated by MRCT with support from Medible and a diverse group of stakeholders to um, better understand some of the process that IRBs and ethics committees are trying to navigate and to shed some light on some of the gaps. Uh, there are some recommendations we're talking about that this group has produced. As always, feel free to jump on stage and join us. We, uh, we have the lines open. If you have a question, an idea, perspective on today's topic, you're more than welcome. For those of you joining us uh, online through the Decentralized Podcast at a replay, that's great. Always remember, we gather here on Fridays at 12 noon. You're always welcome to join us here live and add your voice to the conversation. Jane, I'm, I'm wondering uh, from what you've heard so far, this sounds like a great um, set of resources for the tube stop map. Do you want to share a little bit about the DTRA tube stop map and what types of resources people can find there? I'll be quick, but um, this might be a good convo for another day too. Uh, and we will 
talk a little bit at the annual meeting about this. So when we started working at DTRA, there were 12 initiatives chartered and the output of those initiatives is now consolidated, we'll say, through this DCT tube stop map, which is like an end-to-end -end digital resource process map on what happens in the four big stages of trials, planning, setting up, conducting, and closing your trial. So the initiative outputs are mapped to those different stops, and you can go find them where they're relevant. But I want to give a shout out to our partner organizations such as MRCT because their initiative outputs are also mapped into the tube stop at the appropriate stops, or what we think were the most appropriate stops. So that's the other element here. It's a call to action. If you see something you think we need to add or change, there's a feedback form on every single page, and we welcome that information so we can keep the resource relevant. So in this case, Jane, um, where on the tube stop journey, as so the tube stop for the folks that aren't familiar at DTRA.org, it's a visual representation of the journey of planning, designing, executing a trial, and at each stop on that journey, resources, whether created by DTRA, by um, other organizations, as long as it's in the public domain, trying to make those resources found and available by, uh, by the research community, at what stop on the train would um, resources like these make the most sense? Okay, you're testing me now. <laughs> I think we mapped them into study startups, the regulatory and ethics submissions. Now, you may want to consult them before that, but for sure you want to do it at that stage. So that is under the study startup domain in the map. I really recommend people go take a peek and then ask questions. Sounds great. And Barbara, these, uh, the tube stop that Jane is referencing is really meant to link out directly to resources because I know, you know, rather than try to reproduce those resources, the MRCT website uh, folks aren't familiar, uh, there's a, a link at the top of your screen here in Clubhouse that'll get you right to the DCT um, recommendations for IRBs and ethics committees at the MRCT site. But the tube stop that Jane is uh, describing there will also get you there um, because it, there's some really nice um, interfaces here uh, in terms of um, interaction around the figures that are included in the um, in the considerations uh, website. It's not just a, a flat document in PDF format, which is kind of nice. Um, Barbara? So, well, I was just going to say, yes, the, the tube stop does reference um, the 12 specific documents, but not, it doesn't sort of send you to the landing page, which gives the logic behind it. So those are the PDFs that um, and checklists that come off the background understanding. Uh, so it might be worth just remodeling it a little bit so that people get the logic behind how these things came to be and um, what the additional uh, considerations are like safety, quality, um, those kinds of things and privacy. That Great sounds like a good shift. I like it. Mm. Great shout out. Great shout out. I wonder, um, Barbara, <coughs> excuse me, I'm 
getting my water on here. Barbara, can you share um, in the in the considerations? Are there any key examples that you'd like to call out that either um, validated an expectation you had, or anything that maybe might be particularly surprising or um, empowering for researchers when they when they look at the uh, considerations that are published? Sure. Let me defer first to Leanne. Uh, go for it, Barbara. No, no, no. Go for it. I've been doing <laughs> too much talking. <laughs> um, I think I, I already touched upon the example that to me was um, was uh, surprising, but also a real opportunity. And that is, um, uh, uh, my understanding is that in a lot of trials, there is um, a request for screenshots. Um, as a platform is being developed, and it can take literally, I've, I've heard up to hundreds of hours for um, screenshots back and forth and different languages and different platforms. And so I think the recommendation that suggests that the IRB given really the language of the informed consent form and then have an opportunity once the platform is available to do an expedited review to see what the uh, potential participants experiences to me was like, wow, that's that just makes a lot more sense from an efficiency standpoint. Um, and um, I've not been on an IRB, but it seems like for an IRB that might be a lot less confusing and a lot easier as well. Um, so to me, that was that's kind of the example that always comes to my mind. And let me give one other example, um, which is that I think that IRBs have not really appreciated the um, depth of consideration that you need to think about in using different devices, either bring your own or, or um, be provided, um, and what the privacy security concerns are um, in that regard. They've also under-investigated underinvested, as have many non-commercial um, investigators, uh, you know, where the, the commercial ones, companies are doing a good job of this, but investigators who are not supported by companies, I don't think are, um, of understanding the data architecture. Where does the data flow? Where does it come from? Who stores it? Has it transferred? What's the security? What do you have to worry about? Who has access for it, to it? I mean, participants, if you give them a term of reference or terms of use, they'll agree. We all do. We don't read every new Apple uh, contract. And so it's up to the IRB, or is it, to make sure that the, you know, there isn't exculpatory language or access to other information on your phone or on the tablet or who has access to that kind of data. And I think that is really different about DCTs and mobile technologies than, you know, site-based trials where you fill out something literally in the doctor's office and it stays in the medical record under HIPAA constraints. That's different. 
These are interesting considerations, though, just around um, literacy and accessibility of any consent or term and condition. It's a really fair point that few of us as consumers read terms and conditions, um, but we also know that consents aren't really being uh, read with the same diligence that we'd like to. Does it place the onus on the IRB to have to housekeep all of those provisions um, when we can't really assume that just because it's in the consent or the terms and conditions that people are truly making informed decisions? That's exactly right. And um, IRBs will reject the fact that, that anyone thinks it's their responsibility. They're not, they're not um, trained. Um, they're not IT people. They're not able to do that review. So they do need the support of IT you know, expertise, either on the IRB or outside it, to which they can refer and depend. Can I jump in with a question here? It's been burning for me for a while, actually. And it relates back to the FDA draft DCT guidance. Um, so I actually have, it's a two-part question. First, might be very obvious to you, Barbara. It wasn't to me. So in the guidance, I believe there's a recommendation to seek central IRB review. And I would love to hear your your thoughts about the rationale for that. And the second part of the question is, how did you and your peers, maybe even this work group, review and comment on the guidance and what what did you think was enabling? What did you think was still kind of not quite worked out? Well, let me take the second first. <clears throat> the MRCT uh, Center did uh, respond to the FDA guidance. Um, it came out after we, Medible, MRCT Center and others had uh, already published and or made available our uh, IRB uh, and ethics review work, um, and it goes beyond what we were, what we're really talking about today. So we did comment on it. I think that um, from our point of view, that's MRCT's point of view, uh, and my personal view, it really goes, um, it, 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 they really tried to help people be comfortable with uh, DCTs and DCT elements in trials by laying out some of the parameters that you should be thinking about as you design and conduct them. I think the hardest part about them for me was one, I love the fact that they brought up uh, healthcare providers, HCPs, as having a role in, uh, in clinical trials. It's the first time the FDA has ever referenced HCPs. But I don't think that we really understand what makes somebody, an individual, either an HCP or a delegated responsibility from the PI or an independent PI at a site. And, and that's very confusing. If you take a blood pressure as an adverse, you know, as a safety sort of uh, um, measure, uh, and follow up and it's in with it within your scope of practice, you're an HCP. If that blood pressure then becomes an endpoint, what are you? You've contributed to the data of the trial and that is not 
the role of an HCP, but that the, the work isn't different. So it's a very interesting kind of space right now that we need to help define to understand and help people be comfortable in the work that they're doing and the responsibilities that they assume. So that to me was one of the major uh, sort of novel um, uh, considerations. There are others, of course, but we can talk through that. Um, the issue about central IRB is one where I think the federal government is moving uh, OHRP, the Office of Human Research Protections and the Common Rule has already required it for work conducted or supported by the federal uh, agencies. Um, F FDA, as I said, has a um, NPRM out at the moment, but I think that they're thinking about it as a way of being more efficient uh, and um, having uh, an ease uh, of IRB review, so you're not dealing with, you know, 140 IRBs, and that at the time that a patient is picked up in North Dakota for a rare disease, they can rely on the IRB review of that protocol that has been already reviewed, and they can be added as a site or as an individual authorization agreement if, if that's the way they prefer to go or an HCP if the PI has uh, the ability to run a trial in North Dakota. So it's really trying to ease the burden, the administrative burden, and make sure that the reviews are cogent, efficient, and hopefully will propel ethics committees to get comfortable, particularly in the big ethics committees, whether independent IRBs or academic, to get comfortable reviewing these trials. We're going to see more and more of them, I hope. That was super helpful. Thank you. Oh, Leanne, please oh, go ahead. I was going to say, just to add to that, you know, that's, um, I was reflecting back at my time at the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, and City recommended the use of central IRBs almost 10 years ago. Um, and there was a lot of resistance back and forth, even as, um, federal agencies were trying to encourage um, the use of central IRBs for a number of reasons. And I think Barbara's work and others at Smart IRB was really one of those opportunities to, to make it more acceptable and, and common. So Barbara, I don't know if you want to talk specifically about the Smart IRB role in that, but I think when a number of academic organizations um, agreed to work together, that was, that allowed some cultural shifts that may not have um, naturally occurred. Yeah. Amir, what are some of your thoughts on this conversation? You've been intersecting with IRBs on many considerations for uh, for quite a few minutes. What are what are what are you sensing as uh, novel or surprising based on the conversation so far, or how these strategies, these tools that MRCT has created, are uh, are, are potentially going to address some of those gaps. You know, I'm just very pleased that uh, we have MRCT and what they're doing and how we're trying to bring people together to actually kind of think, make things more efficient, less. The way, I mean, ultimately for me, what I think about is uh, the more waste and sort of redundant work we have or 
frankly, you know, making sure the variability between RB expertise, that kind of thing, the more we can reduce that, the better. We only have so much resources. So whatever we can do to make that efficient is great. And everything I've heard today, uh, I'm very pleased about. So my main reaction is that, you know, I'm glad this work is being done. Barbara, is this work done? Is there ongoing uh, follow-up work? Um, were there any oh, uh, gaps that were left behind? So a ton of follow-up work is, um, you know, uh, just as DTRA uh, work is not done, same, the same for us. I think all of us need to continue to work on working through the issues that that uh, FDA put out. Um, I think that internationally it remains an issue um, uh, to how to operationalize this, uh, which we're considering as well. I think that um, even with uh, DCTs, we need to really think about accessibility and uh, translation. A lot of these um, uh, uh, pieces, uh, you know, the technologies are not interoperable across language, you know, even the, even if you have a PDF of an informed consent that is translated, it's in a background of an application that is largely in English or reads left to right, not variably. So we've got a lot of inclusivity issues. Uh, the people, I hope it, it extends to remote contexts, but, you know, we still have infrastructure issues in the United States in terms of data access and internet access. We've got a lot to do, and that's beyond um, the the sort of um, PI oversight responsibilities and working through some of these other issues that Medable and MRCT uh, Center are doing together as the follow-on work. So Leanne, you may want to talk about that piece, um, if you like. Um, I was actually gonna um, build upon what you said. Um, for everyone in the DTRA community, and particularly people on the phone, we welcome feedback about gaps or um, you know the level of detail that we went into and the considerations. And I was speaking a couple of months ago, and someone said, "You know, you haven't said anything about um, at-home tests that participants might do, whether it's blood draws or um, you know a swab for DNA testing." And so, I think at some point, um, MRCT has a standard maybe three years where they start to relook at resources that they've done and figure out how to. Um, make them even more relevant to the ecosystem, um, you know, it's only going to get better with the input of folks like those on the, on the call. And this is a really evolving area, as everyone knows. So um, just really encourage you to give feedback via the MRCT website. In terms of um, our work in PI oversight, and we've had conversations um, with DTRA because DTRA is also doing work in this area as are others and we want to be very collaborative and complementary. But we're specifically looking at what are some of the um, challenges and ways to address those challenges with PEI oversight from the perspective of sponsors and PEIs and other healthcare providers. And we completed a survey 
um, at the end of last year, which is written, being written up. Um, and we also held an expert meeting. And through that, there were a number of tools such as a framework to help evaluate risk of oversight in a particular trial that um, we're now working with MRCT and um, other stakeholders to create and make publicly available. Oh, so that's, that's really exactly what you said, Leanne, complementary. So when we were thinking about um, the deep rabbit hole of regulatory forms, how you navigate them in DCTs, we thought a lot about a decision tree, like what is within the context of a trial? What is standard of care? How do you map that? How do you then determine who goes where? It sounds like you're gonna take this through a different lens of decision-making, like the quality framework, the safety oversight. I'm really excited about that. Thank you. Is there an opportunity, Leanne, if folks in this community hearing about this for the first time would like to engage and participate? Is that still open for new participants or is that uh, work that's already uh, happening and already has momentum? 100%. Yeah, always willing to, yeah, always <laughs> willing to uh, engage in a conversation where people's interest um, aligns with our work and have them engage. And no, the work is not done as yet. We're just, you know, in the we haven't even figured out the sausage skin. We're so involved in figuring out all the things that need to get done. So it's a perfect time to reach out. And as you said, it's so important for these conversations to happen in an open and transparent way about the areas of interest, the the um, the different pursuits. There's there's really so little capacity for redundant efforts in this space. Um, how can these pieces, uh, specifically around investigator oversight, fit together and make sure we're addressing this wide universe of gaps and challenges to make sure that investigators have the tools and resources they need and the patients have the proper protection and oversight that, that they absolutely require. So I appreciate your calling that out and staying connected, whether it's uh, parallel work with city or um, ACRO or Transcelerate or DTRA or the rest of that community of different initiatives. You know, these things aren't inherently redundant. These different organizations have different stakeholders, different charters. Um, they represent different voices. And so in many cases, it is, it is important for things to happen in multiple places at once, as long as they are transparent and can create those handoffs. Yeah, and, and personally, I think that the more we align, the easier it's going to be for the community. So being in close touch and working together and so far as we can uh, is, is really optimal. Barbara, with just a couple of minutes left, is there anything coming up in the universe of MRCT outside of decentralized trials that you'd like to give a shout out? or uh, coming soon around? Oh, so such a great opportunity. Um, so as you know, we've been working on diversity, inclusion, equity for, for years. Um, and we just finished a inclusion of people with disabilities um, uh, toolkit, which uh, has gotten a lot of uh, really good um, sort of use. Uh, currently, we're now working on a uh, model template for diversity action plans and then thinking 
and about to come out with the uh, sort of how do you interpret diversity uh, representativeness and those issues in a global context. Um, we're in the middle of a work group on LGBTQI uh, plus inclusiveness. Um, so that's a piece we've done uh, some work in pediatrics and now specifically on HTAs and thinking about HTAs and how they provide or inhibit access to, to uh, medicines uh, in Europe and elsewhere for pediatric uh, diseases or medicines as well as rare diseases. Um, and then, you know, doing this work on training initiatives across uh, uh, Africa uh, and ethics capacity building, DSMB capacity building, et cetera. So lots coming down. We're having our annual meeting in December, which is open. It's both virtual and, um, and in person. Uh, as well as um, a uh, bioethics collaborative and what we call a regulatory development and re research re development and regulatory roundtable, where we're doing a lot on the privacy uh, laws across the around the world, and you know, most recently India. Um, and we're we're initiating a big project on cell and gene therapy, which is going to be the a major effort of Carolyn Chapman, who just joined us, and and uh, emergency preparedness. So a lot of different work, uh, you know, really fun, actually. <laughs> so. And so many important intersections, right? And I, I love that that message around diversity and diversity action plans, and so many of the dimensions around diversity, and certainly interesting intersections there, of course, for the. Uh, DCT community where at the very least decentralized research should be a tactic as a part of many of those plans, not the not the silver bullet, but certainly an important tool to be able to draw upon and why it's so important that we're taking such a holistic look here. Um, well, I know I'm very grateful to uh, Barbara, Leanne, thank you so much for both your leadership on this topic and bringing together different voices to create tools, to get them out in the public domain, to make it easier for folks to understand what to expect and do better when looking at decentralized methods in their studies, and in particular, navigating the uh, IRB and ethics review processes. Um, really appreciate, you know, all the work you've done there in general, but specifically on this topic and getting it all out there. Um, thanks so much for joining us here on TGIF DCT. Thank you. Thank you. Really fun to be part of this community. Jane, Amir, I'm looking ahead at next week and it looks like we have a session coming up next week talking about, um, well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure what we're talking about next week now. Do, do you know Jane offhand? I think it's the business model of enabling DCTs within corporate structures with oh, Maddie. Yeah. That's right. That's going to build on a great session that uh, came up at a conference recently around business plans and business models within sponsor organizations to organize around decentralized um, 
within. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. And then shortly after that, we'll be together, many of us in Boston, for the DTRA annual meeting coming up very soon for the community to gather both uh, in person and online. Check out DTRA.org if you're not registered or wondering uh, if and how to make that happen. We'll look forward to see so many of you there. Um, otherwise, thanks so much for joining us here this week, and we'll look forward to connecting with you soon. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.